Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week for a segment some fun sports media talk with Chad Finn of the Boston Globe. We go through all the uh, craziness of the NFL's first week. Aaron Rodgers being out, what that uh, that's a massive impact when it comes to the NFL in terms of scheduling, sports viewership, etc. Um, get into Deion Sanders a little bit, the Pat McAfee show. So uh, I think you'll enjoy that. Chad and I rapping for about 30 minutes on sports media talk. He's followed by Ava Wallace, a tennis writer and a terrific one for the Washington Post, also their Wizards beat reporter. And we get into the challenges of covering the U.S. Open and the majors, uh, what her access was to players like Coco Goff and Novak Djokovic during the U.S. Open, her takeaways from that, what's next for Coco Goff, get into a little bit of uh, the conflicts of interest in tennis when it comes to broadcasters. Um, Ava Wallace, uh, if you don't know her work, uh, go look it up. She is really one of the great tennis writers in the United States right now. All right, before we uh, start all this, once again, cheap promotion plug. On October 3rd, a book I guest edited, The Year's Best Sports Writing 2023 from Triumph Books comes out, uh, features the best sports writing of the year. Um, Just some amazing, amazing pieces of sports journalism and long-form sports journalism. Uh, You can get the book on Amazon. Again, if you are a reader, Independent of me, I just highly recommend it. It is the best pieces of 2022 in an anthology for 2023. It's the annual book uh, for those of you who have followed that. So again, the year's best sports writing, 2023, out on October 3rd. And with that, let's go to Chad Finn of the Boston Globe. All right, as promised, some sports media talk. And for that, we bring in Chad Finn, sports media writer, general columnist of the Boston Globe. Chad, how are you? I'm good, Rich. How are you? Staying busy? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Not much sleep uh, today for me. About four hours because I talked to, uh, as we're taping this on Tuesday, I talked to Joe Buck very, very late after that uh, Aaron Rodgers Bills game, and so, uh, so I'm I'm struggling as they as they say. But and let's start with that. Um, one of the more remarkable Monday Night Football games you will ever see. A uh, 
an absolutely stunning night in Jersey, given that Rodgers is out for the year. Obviously, the Jets won on a dramatic punt return. I thought Joe Buck's call was exceptional. Tremendous. Um, and, and that's, yeah, and that's, I'm using that word specifically, uh, a tremendous, exceptional call. But here's the thing I want to start with, Chad, and we'll get to the ratings or the viewership for the NFL for the week. But Rodgers being out for the year is game-changing. Um, our buddy Anthony Krupe of Sportico tweeted out the national games for the Jets through Black Friday, and like <laughs> oh, it's no. just a massive amount. Like The league, understandably, w- put the Jets in so many premium spots because of Rodgers, and now that's done. So let's start here. How big a loss is this for the NFL in terms of sports media, viewership, content, et cetera? Well, it will survive, but it I, I, has there ever been a more hyped and justifiably hyped offseason story than Rodgers to the Jets? I mean, there are just so many variables to it. Um, you know, one of the great quarterbacks of all time, uh, New York, you know, that market uh, team that is snake bitten to say the least throughout history and has really hasn't had a quarterback uh, of... Uh, star caliber since Namath um, and it was all yeah, hard knocks it was all lining up where they've got got this great eight, uh, I guess we call it max now build up to the start of the season the start of this marriage between Rodgers and the Jets and four plays in it's over that is the most Jets thing I've ever heard in my life but beyond that um, it's almost it's practically unfair and uh, you know I don't ever empathize with the NFL really on anything, but uh, it is pretty remarkable how much investment they have in this storyline and how it's all gone yeah, now. I don't empathize with the NFL at all. I do with Jet fans. I, like, I think that's <laughs> ever. Like, I understand that. So let me just give you this like briefly, okay? Because I have, and we thank Anthony right. for this. Next week, Jets-Dallas. That's a national CBS game. Then it's the Patriots in your neck of the woods. That's a regional CBS yeah, Nansen Romo for that one. So it was the number one. Yeah. yeah, that Nance told yeah, me it was. Sunday yeah. night football after that, KC Jets. Then there's a 420 regional game, Jets-Denver. So still 420. Then a national game on Fox. I think, I don't know if that's the last back end of the doubleheader, but it's against the Eagles. So you were looking at massive numbers. Jets-Giants, that's a regional game, but still. Jets-Giants will draw. Jets-Giants. Monday Night Football on November 6th against the Chargers. Sunday Night Football on November 12th against the Raiders. Jets-Buffalo <laughs> national CBS game on the 19th. And then the 24th, Miami Jets Thursday Night Football, Amazon's big Black Friday blowout. That's unbelievable in terms of how many national windows that the Jets were in that unless they either continue to play crazy defense or they get I don't even know if there's a quarterback out. There's no Aaron Rodgers out there, but you know what I'm saying? It's just nationally what could have been versus what is now. Incredible. Yeah. Have you noticed all the New York ride, the Gary Myers and people like that uh, saying maybe they should give Tom Brady a call or definitely they, they should, should give, give him a Tom call. Brady I don't know call. if he'll say yes, but I, I, in fact, I'd be stunned if he did. He declared himself a Patriot for life this weekend, so he's not taking he's any calls from the, the Jets. Jets right? but... he's, he would never do that. <laughs> 
He also looks about 20 pounds lighter than he did last year. So I don't know if you get through four snaps either, but uh, Zach Wilson's going to get the headlines that he deserves, right? The the primetime Zach Wilson. I mean, you got to start him. You got to start him like, like he's, he deserves to start next week. And then after that, figure it out. But like, you can't bring in like Nick Foles yeah. or Carson Wentz and start him next week. I mean, I feel like the guy just beat. They're no better yeah, anyway. Just beat the Bills. Yeah. I mean, to me, you got to give him uh you got to give him another start. All right. Are they still fairly appealing? The I Jets, love their defense. Without Rogers? I think it's very exciting. Um, and obviously, yeah, they're not Garrett bad. Wilson is a, just an incredible receiver. Like that, he's obviously going to be a star. Um, I don't know. You know, I just i I always work under the premise that the league is marketed by quarterbacks, and that is the position that draw, oh, draws yeah. the casual fan in. Like, I don't have any connection to Kansas City, but I want to see Patrick Mahomes play. Right. So that's how I look at it. So I don't know. I, I would tend to think no, unless they're like eight no and they become like the story of the year that look at this team. You know what Ooh. I'm saying? Look at this team, what they've done without Aaron Rodgers. Um, if they lose next week and go one and one, like I think you're thinking very differently about the Jets. Did you watch them on Hard Knocks? Some of it, not much. Yeah. I watched it. Yeah. I thought it was the most, uh, I mean, the, the formula is just, it's redundant to now, but I watched it. I and I, I think you, for all the Rogers talk, I think you have to feel pretty good about what their team is. I still think they're going to be fairly appealing in those windows. I love that kick. I love the kick quarterback. I was lead. psyched for him. That was a great little thing. Yeah, that was great. People knew who he was because of yeah. that. No, so I'm with you on that. The um, as we're taping this, the um, the only number that's not out yet is the Monday Night Football game. Um, it looks like, uh, in terms of like preliminary uh, stuff coming out, um, twenty-one million, and that's Robert Seidman. We uh, sports TV ratings on Twitter. We give him the nod there. So if that number uh, holds up, and I have no reason why, uh, actually, here is now all getting confirmed, uh, twenty-one point six million. So, which is a very good number for Monday Night Football. So what that means is that here is what this means, Chad. So the early games were down significantly, more than 20%. National games were up over 5%. At, before the Monday Night Football game, according to Krupe, the league's average was down 2%, but he was saying Monday Night Football will likely put week one in the black. So with the $21 million, um, the NFL is up over last year, week one. Um, I can't say I'm surprised, but again, if you're the NFL, you got to feel great. And where they really got a massive number was that first game, the Lions-Chiefs, which drew crazy big number, maybe an unexpected one, uh, given those two. And then Sunday Night Football did better than you would think with a 40 nothing blowout. You know, they, they lost some viewers, but they didn't lose everybody. Um, so, feels like the same old story, you know? People were into the NFL, and viewership followed. Yeah, that, that Sunday night game is pretty interesting because Collins Ross said just a week or two ago that they'd put Dallas on every week if they could. Uh, did you see that quote? And, uh, it, they, they, apparently their audience stays too, especially when they're winning big. Maybe if that was 40 nothing Giants, it would have been, uh, you know, a different, different outcome. But the, the, the Cowboys audience is large and loyal still, even though that team has won a Super Bowl in a couple of decades now. But yeah, the, uh, I know CBS too was really happy with the four twenty-five window with uh, most of the country getting Patriots Eagles. That was around twenty twenty-one point three million, I think it averaged, uh, and uh, up big over last year, and and uh, ended up being a pretty great game after 
Philadelphia went up 16 nothing uh could have been could have been one of those cases where after the first quarter it felt like they might lose some audience if the Patriots didn't get get back into it and make it interesting but uh they didn't uh good start for them too they were they were pretty happy with their weekend the um the college numbers came in as well uh Alabama Texas was the most watched game uh college game of the week uh barely though over Nebraska Colorado uh, Texas Bama, when you get ESPN and ESPN2, 8.76 million viewers. Nebraska, Colorado, 8.73 million viewers. And so what do you make of just Colorado, Chad? And like every – I mean, <laughs> by the way, the athletic as well, everybody has jumped on this thing. And it's no doubt it's a fascinating story what Deion Sanders has done in terms of you know turning over an entire roster, bringing his swagger into Colorado. But like he – he has essentially become a one-man content machine. Like, The Athletic cannot write enough stories about this guy or things surrounding him. I see the page views numbers and the subs that, have, that are brought in from it. It's been massive. And then, look really? at, and then look at Fox. Fox, over the last two weeks, has had monster viewership numbers in Big Noon Kickoff. And they're going to get more because it looks like I think they're going to get USC Colorado in a couple weeks. Uh, game Day and Big Noon Kickoff are both going to Colorado this week. Um, it's unbelievable, right? I mean, like this is a become a massive media story. He like he's an all time marketing genius. I mean, you think of what he did when he came into the NFL as a player in 1989 and, and became a household name as a defensive back and punt returner. Um, just, uh, I mean, even going back to Florida State, he he knew how to promote himself and uh, was a generation ahead of his time with that in, prof- in professional and college sports. Uh, and he's doing it again as a coach. He did it. Yeah, you know, he did it at uh, uh, Jackson State, and he's uh, doing it now at Colorado with the completely remade roster that won one game last year. And they're going to be fighting uh, if this keeps up, fighting over to uh, get their games on television and provide content. I think they're on ESPN this week, right? Isn't it the late game of Colorado State? So, yeah, they are. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's the story in college sports, and it's one of the biggest stories in sports right now. And it's because uh, Dion, it's uh, like him or no, don't like him. He's a, a brilliant marketer and brilliant at self-promoting and promoting his players and team, and uh, he's doing it again. It's unbelievable. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit HelloAlma.com Therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's HelloAlma.com Therapy60. All right couple we're just we're good we're fast switching co- um topics on uh on this one um have you watched any of the pat mcafee show as it debuted this week on espn yeah a little bit what'd you think overall first impressions still pat mcafee uh, uh i mean uh it looks like basically the same thing to me um i i liked that he lamented that 
uh, Diana Rossini had left ESPN. Did you see that? No, I didn't. He, no, he, today has been yeah. one of those days. So can you? Yeah, and obviously Diana Rossini now works with me at the Athletic. Can you? Uh, can you inform me what I missed, please? No, just you know, he uh, had respect for her work. He thought she was uh, an excellent newsbreaker. Thought she did a good job on the air, and it seemed like he was kind of looking forward to being on her team. So I guess that's a that's a good thing for the Athletic, right? That she's uh, she's on your maybe, roster, maybe, but well, Pat Pat has influence now with the executives why not walk over to norby's office in the talent office and say hey <laughs> let's pay diana rossini however i don't even know what the money would be you know but uh the thing with diana rossini and again like i i don't i i've talked to her maybe once or twice via uh email or text not not, not much um i certainly respect mm-hmm. her work i think it's i think it's so hard to be an insider at ESPN and NFL Insider when Adam Schefter's around. Like it's just, like they they have everything filters through Adam Schefter essentially on the big stuff. And so right. Darlington or Diana Rossini or Kim Martin or whatever, um you know, all really good reporters. It's just there's always going to be a ceiling because there's there's only one top insider. It's just like there's only one woge on the NBA um at ESPN. So you know, I do like can I can understand like if the company like doesn't have a long term plan for you, and I'm not saying this was the case with Diana Rossini. Like, I get you got to look around and um and do other stuff. Uh, also, you know, for some people, like at a certain point, and again, I, I'm not speculating that this is specific to her. I'm just sort of making more of a generalization. Like, you know, the lore of TV does go away sometimes. Like, you know, it's like you don't once you've been on it for like ten years, you don't have to be on it every day. It takes just a certain person who really is obsessed with that kind of uh, sports fame to sort of want to go every day and have their own take every day on something. So um, it was an interesting move. I'm going to take my – you know, again, this podcast is independent. I've only said it now like for 300 podcasts, so I'll say it again. Um, I have no idea how it's going to end up with Diane Rossini at the Athletic. It could be a smashing success or like one or two years from now she'd be like – yeah, this I'm not really a digital print person. I'm I'm gonna head to more all time full time TV. So I don't know how it's gonna play, but I, I just I like when someone does something unexpected, and that was the move that she made. So whether she had gone to the Athletic or the Washington Post or uh, the Boston Globe, like I think that's just interesting. That's how I would look at it. Yeah, no, I agree too. I you know you reminded me of something though, and th- this happens at print places too, uh, but more more with the networks. Um, what I'm always, I want to see the dynamics of the, the, the machinations when you see a tweet and it's say it's NBA news and uh, I don't know, Kevin Durant asked for a trade and it's reported by um, a less uh, uh, NBA reporter with a lower profile and Adrian Wojnarowski. Does that, is ESPN kind of forcing the lower level reporter to include the the bigger name there quote unquote insider on that because that's what the I don't think so. That's what their job is. No, I think or is it like helping out with a source? Yeah, what, yeah. I, I, mean, I mean I think it always makes me suspicious. I think when you're at the Woj Shams Schefter uh, uh who am I missing? Rappaport, you know, what name your top insider du jour. I actually think they're so sourced crazy that they end up helping out their colleagues and you might get a tag. You know, that's when you get the double tag on it. I would also bet, without knowing this, uh, an example, that there are times when these guys are so well sourced that they may give away something to another colleague, like something that's smaller. <laughs> right. Like I really do believe that. Like I just think, like you know, to sort of to help them out. I don't think Adam Schefter would ever give away like uh, 
Robert Kraft. Aaron Rodgers, Achilles. Yeah, yeah. Rob Robert Kraft is selling the Patriots, something like that. You know that he's not giving that away, but um, Globe's breaking that anyway. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I've yeah, I, I I don't think that's just a marketing play. Like, let's get Schefter's name on the on the on the ticker because at this point, like, if you are an ESPN consumer, how on earth do you not know who their top NFL and NBA insider is? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but if if I were the insider, I'd want my name on everything. You would. Okay. Yeah. I'd be so so I, I don't know, guarded or protective yeah, of that no, I hear you. role I and that salary. I guess I just salary. don't give a shit enough, Chad, where I'm like going to force that. Uh, so this is me and you're different. <laughs> this is why you got a much longer career in this than I do. Uh, you you share with the other media folks. Yeah, it's interesting in terms of uh, sort of the whole insider. You probably do a multiple podcast series on uh, on insiders. Well, the one last thing on McAfee. Um, you know, viewership seem to be good when you roll up all the different viewerships between linear <laughs> Um, you know, their YouTube numbers, which ESPN PR is going to smartly do. You don't just put like McAfee getting like 250,000 on ESPN. You roll it all up with the YouTube stuff and he'll be, he'll get right. significant numbers. They put him on a college football game, he and his crew. Um, and that seemed to do well. I interviewed not too long ago, Ty Schmidt, his producer and also an on-air guy. I really, really like him. Talented guy. Um, so I, I you know, it seems like this first week, um, plus, you know, it's been, it's been pretty smooth. Um, there's going to be people. Think who, he gets Rodgers? Yes, I do. I think Rodgers will yeah. continue to go on. I don't know if he goes on this week, but I think he will. I don't think there's any. In fact, I'd be very surprised if not, because I think Aaron's going to want to for him to uh, to come on yeah. and talk. You know, if the Jets go one and fifteen, maybe that changes stuff. But uh, you know, also let's be honest, McAfee's never really going to grill him. I mean, he's, he's going to protect him. He's not going to put Rodgers in a tough place. But I, I think very clearly we've already seen that show is going to get some very, very big names. They want that thing to succeed. You know, you don't pay a dude like those kind of multiple millions unless you don't put him in a position. And again, I find the whole cursing thing one of the funniest things ever. Like, I, I get, I, it's amazing that, like, it produces content. Like, if, ooh, McAfee, someone on McAfee's team cursed. Like, it, it's like this 2023, and this is a cable product. Like, in some right. ways, I don't even know why you can't F-bomb all over the place. You should be able to fuck, fuck, fuck as much as you want. <laughs> Sorry, Patrick. I just gave you the uh, – There's a I just cha- takeout just cha- quote just right there. I just the rating on this one. Sorry. But you know what I'm saying? It's so silly. Um, but then again, I would have PR – some not PR. Some ESPN executives telling me, well, you know, there are kids in the audience and we got to – yeah, I get it. I, I mean, I don't know. How many seven-year-olds are watching Pat McAfee at 2 p.m.? Should they be in school, Yeah, I think right? it's the older demo. It's going to yeah. be more bothered by it, I think. Yeah, I mean, tr- trust me. Sometimes you don't even want to know who's watching those all those take shows in the afternoon. Um, all right, what else? Uh, we'll do we'll do charter um, and Disney quick. I know you have. Not- Wait, what? What did you? Go ahead. What did you watch for NFL broadcast this weekend? Okay, so I wa- I, I have the package up here in. Uh, Lovely Toronto. It's not YouTube. I, I get it through my cable system. It's just is, very, is very different. A Sunday ticket version. Yeah, Sunday ticket version, which is great. I, it's really – it's amazing. Like honestly, Canada is a great place to watch the NFL because you can get pretty much everything for a fairly decent price. Although I would love to have the YouTube multi-view. That seems like a pretty – It's cool, great. Cool thing. It's fantastic. Yeah, I, and I, I heard a lot of great things about – do you have YouTube? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it, we've always had YouTube yeah, TV. So before we get to chart inspection, it's far more interesting. Tell me your experience with it because I don't have it, and I and I know a lot of listeners are 
who who listen to this podcast do have it. So how did you how did you feel about its functionality and everything else? Uh, I thought it was an incredible upgrade over Directv. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have you know. The, you, you just any time in the last couple of years, if you are on Twitter on a Sunday, you saw what people thought of DirecTV. So it seems like um, <laughs> it seems like people are going to be really, really psyched uh, with YouTube. And the only thing, like everything else, Chad, it's just a price point. It's you know, do you feel like this price point is fair for you, and is it worth it? Generally speaking, when it comes to the NFL, people will almost play, pay any price to have the accessibility of those games. Yeah, they will. And, you know, I mean, I've always in the, been in the market of the team that I want to watch, so I haven't had a lot of use for it through the years. But um, just kind of really getting a feel for it right now, it just, it, 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 it's just it's a product that's gotten better, uh, that's going to get better with YouTube TV. And uh, I think people are going to be really happy with it that, you know, have to watch out of market. So I don't know why... I don't know why they didn't do this before and make it a little bit more, even more accessible. You know, always had that stuff uh, down like the left side, you know, little ads, little stats, things like that. And this, this is the games. It's just a much cleaner experience. Well, uh, when it comes to uh, Charter Disney, I will in the next couple of weeks sort of have a, like a Michael Nathanson type to, to sort of talk about uh, this big, this sort of, this stuff writ large, you know, obviously, it um, was very, very good news that these two companies were able to finally settle. I'm just laughing because, like, the only losers here, as always, are consumers because the price of this content ultimately, in in some manner, will um, will get pushed onto you. But um, you know, based on my sort of take of this, it felt like Charter, which was essentially threatening in many ways to change the whole paradigm of this and to not have Disney's programming. Uh, as part of its um, as part of its offerings, got ultimately I think what um, what they want. The charter is going to be able to have Disney Plus and ESPN Plus in their programming tiers. Um, they've never had that before. Uh, charter uh, agrees to higher rates for Disney's channels in return to in return to having uh, Disney Plus and ESPN streaming services to their pay TV subscribers. Uh, when the ESPN flagship goes direct to consumer, meaning when everything that's available now on ESPN and ABC becomes available for ESPN plus, that's going to be part of spectrum TV select subscribers when it launches. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, you've probably read a ton on this, but, um, one, it's good that they were able to settle because the reality is we're talking about, you know. 15 million people or whatever the number was that had their services interrupted, particularly in New York and LA, which are obviously major markets. And it does sort of preserve the bundle chat a little bit longer, um, you know, to what probably is an inevitable day of, you know, however many streamers sort of survive, uh, survive all this. The thing that like is always fascinating to me about this is there's still a lot of people who are cable subscribers. I, I realize it's not 100 million anymore, and it's not 90 million, but you know what I mean? It's still a major business. And the one thing I always wonder about is, like, is there a floor? And, like, what is the floor? And my thought is that, like, even when we are old and gray, there will still be 40 million people in the United States, 35 million people in the United States, who subscribe to cable the way we historically have subscribed to cable. Yeah, who was I talking to? It might have been on here with you and Austin about the the 
I, I think it was Austin Carp who thought maybe the floor was around fifty million. Yeah, I don't. That, I, that's a, yeah, that, I think so. I, that could be high, but I would. You know, he's he also works at SBJ and and you know whether it's John O'Rand and. Ben Fisher and all sorts of really great reporters there. You know, they they report on this every day. It, he could be right. I mean, fifty million is a real business. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. if you had, um, I'm trying to think. Like, if if me and you had a sports site or a newsletter that had fifty million people, we would be living in Monaco, Australia, <laughs> right, and Paris. So, like, it's a real business if they if that's ultimately what it is. I I would just buy a boat, but. I- yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think the bigger issue there, one of the bigger issues is the demographics of it, even if, as the subs continue to go down, who are the people who are subscribing? It's not younger viewers. Um, and as those younger viewers get into the, you know, 25 and above demos, um, it's still not going to be them. And so, you know, there's a, there's a real, line of demarcation, uh, you know, the point of, a, a point of diminishing returns with all this for, for, uh, networks are so that are still super reliant on cable and it's it's hard to figure that there's really any way to stem it because the the, there's not a new audience coming um and more you know more and more people each day are saying you know what the heck with this i i recognize now that if i want to watch sports i'm going to have to be selective and i'm going to have to pick these few streaming services that have what i want most and that's what i'm going to do and that yeah you know, one look at a massive cable build uh, bill is uh, the tipping point for a lot of people here nowadays so um it's a obviously a changing model and a rapidly changing one and uh I, I think ESPN, in a way, is out ahead of it because they see where this is going, and I think a lot of their viewers don't yet. So it's uh, it's 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 probably smart business for them the way they're handling everything, even though it's going to alienate a lot of cable subscribers over the years. Anything else uh, of major interest? Yeah, I will say that um, you know, as a tennis fan, I love the fact that Coco Goff won because I think that that is somebody who could really be a viewership player <laughs> as we head forward for ESPN. Um, it's always important. To great personality. Yeah, you need the, the reality is you need Americans to be great if you're ESPN when it comes to their tennis coverage. You know, Djokovic is always going to be a draw because he's Djokovic, but, you know, no more Nadal-Federer-Djokovic, and that changes the, the men's tour a little bit. And as great as some of these younger players are, like uh, uh, Alcaraz. You know, Alcaraz and Medvedev and et cetera, We'll see. I don't. They're not really TV draws yet in the states, at least from my perspective. But Coco is. Uh, that women's final I saw as actually we were taping this drew. I think it was three point three or three point four million. That that's a great number. Now very exciting match. Coco going for a first. Sabalenka is a fun player to watch too. But that this is good for the sport. Like you know, I'm not. No one's going to be Serena. Like that's. It's just like no. There's not going to be another Jordan. But well, of course, but not. Coco right. could be a legitimate viewership driver. If she turns out to be good, and I think she has the game to turn out to be good. Yeah, charismatic personality who's uh, got a shot at a championship every time out. I think they would be happy with that. Do you feel like it's overkill, especially with ESPN, with uh, the references to American players and how long it's been since this or that happened? Yeah, they're always, yeah, they overkill American players, but I can't blame them for that, right? Because, like, I think if you're the American domestic, if you're the domestic carrier, in some ways, I think you got to over overshoot the Americans. I think. Yeah. Well, that okay. Reli- the, not about tennis here, but talking about it was just something I was thinking about watching the broadcast last night. 
Do you think, how did you think they, they handled the Rodgers injury? Because I thought they talked about it less than I expected. And I thought that was good. They, you know, the, the, the theme here is overkill. I don't think that was overkill. Hundred, I'm with, yeah, 100%. I've written this multiple times now. Buck and Aikman and Lisa Salters don't speculate. They just let the images no. play out and they tell you what they see, but they don't take guesses, which I love. Now, yeah. Is that from Jamar Hamlin or go back further than that? Yeah, I think it goes back further, but that was, the to me, the ultimate example of that is that they didn't speculate. And by the way, if you speculated there and you were wrong, like you can never have that back. So I really right. like how they approach it. And I think that's a result of of three people who've been calling NFL games for more than 20 years. I just think they understand that you're always in a better position if you don't guess. And like, so what if like, there's some people who complain like, Oh, Lisa Salters didn't get information in time or, Oh man, like how come Aikman can't diagnose what happened to Rogers? Cause he's a quarterback. I, I, I like what they do. I, they, they err on the side of minimalism. And I think that's really, really smart because the, I mean, I think Aikman knew too. When they showed a replay, he, he just have. didn't say it. Yep, I, and I think that's smart though, because like you, what they what people will always remember is if you're wrong. They're not really going to remember if you didn't first guess correctly. So um, that's a good point. So I'm with you. I, I'm with you. And then it's really a lot of that. They don't is, remember if you're right either. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, th- then that's about <laughs> that's about Steve Ackles, who's the producer, and Derek Mobley, who's the director, just getting good images and getting good replays. And then obviously at a certain point, Lee Salters has to. You know, this is where you hope that the Jets provide information. Um, but both of us, you know, we've occasionally covered NFL games, right? It doesn't always work. Even with the league partners, you don't always get quick information. Man, I cover the Patriots. Come on. Yeah, right. So, like, you know, like sometimes <laughs> you got you got a PR staff that will give it to you quick. Sometimes not. Obviously, when it came to this one, this is one of the most prominent players in the league. So, you know, information is probably going to take a little bit longer. But, yeah, I thought they did a great job. They did not speculate. And then when – you know, it, you could essentially, I think, make an educated guess as an NFL viewer by that fourth quarter. Darren Rodgers is going to be out for the year. You know, they didn't say it, but they sort of spelled out everything for you in terms of what was happening. And um, it's not good. Yes, yeah. yeah. so you could cut. You know, could tell Salah with uh, her her sideline interview, yeah. Lisa's sideline interview with him that. He's not it saying that. Uh, yeah, like almost. He wasn't questionable, right? Every coach was like, "We'll see what happens." Um, I still feel good that he'll be back next week. You know, whatever that sort of phrasing is, he did not. Uh, he didn't do that. So yeah, I think it's something that. Um, I think it's something that. You know, everybody should pay attention to in terms of the other networks. But you know, generally speaking, over the course of my viewership watching, I feel for the most part, especially the A teams, most of the reporters and broadcasters. They're not really big speculators. I think they've learned to sort of like make sure to sort of be smart. And this is where like even like all the concussions and CTE and you know Chris Nowinski at Concussion Foundation Legacy and people like that. This I think just broadcasters are more aware of the power of their words. And you don't want to, yep. you know, you got fa- friends and family watching you, millions of people. You just you don't want to screw that up. Um, and there's a lot of pressure. Like, trust me. I mean, me, I feel like me and you have pressure when we're writing, and we get to delete. We we get to hit the delete button. You know, they, there's no delete button for Joe Buck. If he screws up, you know, every person on Twitter is and is going is putting that, and that thing's going viral. So, um, all right. Well, we'll have you back for for you know over the next couple of weeks. There'll be a lot of NFL 
uh, talk. I got to admit, you know, someone who lived in Buffalo, independent of the Aaron Rodgers stuff, man, that was a rough loss. You got to take, rough you gotta loss. take advantage of that. It's going to be a heck of an AFC East. It the is. Patriots are better than people think. No, they are. They could have won that game. I watched that game. Like they, they yeah. weren't far away from winning that game. The Eagles are great, so it's not like yeah. they hung with they hung, they hung with one of the three best teams in football. So I'm with you. I think the Patriots are better. That defense is better than people anticipate. I'm with you. All right, Chad Finn, follow his work at the Boston Globe. No Red Sox playoffs for you this year, Chad. We'll see if my Blue Jays can make it though. Thank you for uh, thank you for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. You bet, man. Your beloved Blue Jays. <laughs> Thank you, Chad. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, as I said at the top, I bring in Ava Wallace, who is a tennis writer for the Washington Post as well as uh, a Washington Wizards beat reporter. I I cannot recommend her stuff more when it comes to tennis. She is a really gifted writer. It's good on the Post that they allow her to... uh, express voice and style in her prose and uh her her work reminds me of the kind of tennis stuff that i read in sports illustrated and the new york times it kind of that's really what made me fall in love with the sport on top of obviously going there so um if you are a tennis fan that ava wallace is a name to remember and with that i'm pleased to be joined by ava wallace welcome to the sports media podcast thank you for having me that was a very kind introduction yeah, well, it's it is true, and um, and you're welcome. Um, all right, so you just came off what was to me like a really thrilling U.S. Open. Um, you know, fifty thousand different sort of things you can you can take from it, including Novak Djokovic's continued do- dominance. I wouldn't call it a coming out party for Coco Goff, but it, it certainly she sort of let the world know that like this is not going to be the only major. Uh, that she won. So let's sort of start here with a very big, big picture, Ava. Um, what when you're covering this as for the Washington Post and you camp yourself in New York for two weeks? What's the biggest challenge for you regarding covering this tournament? Uh, the biggest challenge is especially in the first week when you're sorting through storylines and there's a lot of storylines, um, and you have to choose the one that's going to be both a good story. And that's also, you know, actually telling the story of where the sport is right now and what matters. Um, or you can, you know, zag and go the complete opposite direction and saying, this doesn't matter, but what a fucking story this is. And this is what interests me. So you can kind of go that way. And the challenge right now that I found with this tournament and a little bit at Wimbledon um, was that there are a lot of good stories, but because of the way the last, whatever, 20 years, 15 years have played out, there aren't a lot of tennis players that really, really matter right now. 
um, because so many people haven't done things in Grand Slams yet. So when you're writing for a broad audience, not a super niche tennis audience, yeah, you can cover your Francis Tiafos, who's a fantastic story and obviously a really, really important story to us at the Washington Post because he's local. But it's like broader tennis. He hasn't really done anything yet. You know what I mean? He had one really good, really captivating semifinal at the U.S. Open. And yes, he could be like so huge for the sport because um, he's a young black guy who loves entertaining, plays excellent tennis. But like it's kind of the thing of like, ah, how, you know, in the grand scheme of things, he doesn't have a grand slam. In the grand scheme of, scheme of things, Stefano Tsitsipas, definitely a name. How much has he done? So it's kind of a lot of that where, and I don't mean at all to be insulting any of these players who are obviously accomplished and many of them have non-slam titles and stuff, but I'm just talking about when you're writing for that kind of broad audience. The first week is tricky because it's both just kind of like trying to drink from a fire hose and realizing like, ah, but how much does this actually register to the wider population? It's so interesting you say that because, you know, sort of like old guy telling stories here. Back in the day, when I was um, a reporter for on SI's tennis coverage, which meant basically that um, uh, our senior writers like Scott Price and um, John Wertheim would file multiple uh, multiple page. We, we this is back in Sports Illustrated actually had like a four page tennis column for the first week of the U.S. Open, and so mm-hmm. you ch- you would chase down like 10 stories and like four would make it. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And then sometimes even like on the first Sunday of the tournament, like there would be a massive upset. And then whoever the sort of the story of the first week might change. Also, there was always an American, as you know, right, who would have a great first week. You'd really go hard on that American. And then like by Monday or Tuesday, they're out. Yeah. Yeah. Now with, I mean, that was one of the dominant storylines was kind of this group of like rising Americans and everything. And it was that thing of me trying to figure out, do I write them first week? Because they all might lose by the quarterfinals or like, when do I do that? The timing of that is is very interesting too. Did you save Ben Shelton for late or did you, did you go early on Ben Shelton? Um, I saved him for late because I had, I, you know, I didn't get to watch. I know he had a, he had a fantastic quarterfinal run in Australia, but he's another guy who like, even outside of the slams the rest of the year, I hadn't got to see him that much. So I didn't know how much to believe. And I didn't know, you know, I'm not, I'm not as up on his story as I should have been, or even as I am on Tommy Paul's or Taylor Fritz or whatever. Um, So, and it's kind of that thing where you have to decide like how many times, even just in, in, you know, only been covering tennis for less than a decade. Have I heard, Oh, he's the next big thing. He's, he's going to be the one to, to do it for American men's tennis. Um, so I, I come to that with probably way too much cynicism and a little bit of a, a jaded attitude. What, you know, when it, one of the things about uh, covering the majors as you do is you do get to see these players, obviously, but you're not on the tour every week. So, you know, the, the, the real advantage would be somebody, if there even is a, a media person who, who covers uh, the tour on a more of a 52 week um, basis, you know, you'd really be in with players, you'd really be in with their agents and managers, et cetera. So um, for you, um, how well do you know the players regarding just the kind of things that the stories or access that you can get, given that you cover the majors, but you don't necessarily cover uh, all the tournaments, I would just assume outside of maybe the Washington based one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, like you said, I've been covering the one in D.C. since I started, so seven years now, but or eight years, I don't know what year it is. Um, I know the players pretty well, honestly. 
because I've been doing the U.S. Open, because I've been doing that tournament in D.C., where a lot of them, especially on the men's side, um, just because it's a, a higher status tournament, have come through. They don't know me, though. That's the thing. Is there, you know, Tiafo, who I've we've covered like anything else at uh, the Post, um, knows me. Coco knows me by face. I see the recognition now, even though sometimes when I get on the phone with her, I have to like remind her who I am. But I know these guys because I watch them all the time because I've written about them and talked to other people about them. But you're right. It's different than like when I go and cover the Wizards and I have like very deeply personal relationships. Like I do feel like, um, you know, I I don't want to call myself an expert, but I am knowledgeable on these guys, but it's a very different thing. And I almost kind of um, appreciate that because tennis is such an access driven sport. And I don't mean that in the way where it's like in the NBA, when there are two or three guys breaking everything. I mean, it's like you are dealing with agents and tennis players have lost almost all interest, if not lost all interest in letting newspapers write about them and letting newspapers be the ones to do the big stories on them. Um, and that's not how I do it. And I, I feel perfectly okay with that. Like, I think it's good to to have a little bit of distance um, just because tennis is so niche and like, I I don't know. I I see the benefit in coming in and not having all of these um, intimate relationships and kind of being able to write with knowledge, but a little bit from, from a different perspective or from a wider perspective, like of like, here's what we're seeing in sports. And like, I can tell that what Coco Goff is doing is not just a big deal for tennis, but a big deal for all of sports. I mean, sure. So can everybody, but I, I don't know. I, I appreciate covering it from a bit of a remove. If I, if you are fortunate enough to go to, you know, two slams a year and at a local tournament. Um, yeah. It's just, it's such a, it's such a niche sport. And you can, I, I do feel like you can almost be too close to it. Yeah. I agree with that. That's well said. How, um, how accessible do you find Coco Goff and her, um, her team, her parents? Uh, let's just use this tournament as an example. What was that like for you? Um, more accessible than you would think less so for Americans at the American slam, but like at Wimbledon, especially after she lost in singles in the first round, she and her parents were just walking around, like watching Christy Banks, having a good time at Wimbledon that where, you know, she's always the star, but way less so in New York, um, than in London, it is easy to kind of, you know, if you do it in the right way or catch the right moments to walk up to people's parents or people's team members or people's coaches, like that part when you're at a tournament on the ground is definitely easy. It's when you, if you're trying to cover this and there are plenty of really good journalists who cover tennis full time. Um, I can't kind of imagine trying to do that from the phone. Like it, it is so much better if you're robustly traveling and going to all these tournaments and like from that point of view, yeah, who does that? Um, but no, at tournaments, people are accessible and Coco Goff is kind of particularly accessible because she is accessible also when she's sitting in front of a packed press conference room. Like she will be honest and show her personality and tell you what she thinks. And it's not, it's polished, but it's not fake. Um, so I would say she's, she's kind of duly accessible in that way. And her parents are cool and seem pretty normal from the interactions, like the brief interactions I've had with them. And um, she will also give you herself. The, um, you know, one of the things I liked about Breakpoint was that I, I felt like I got a uh, a much better sense of some of the personalities on the tour just through yeah. through that uh, series. Now, again, like, you know, it, it is what it is. It's Netflix, and the players in many ways, are they know what they're saying. They're going to control it. That said, they, they let people in, which I thought mm. was pretty 
cool. You know, like I learned more about like uh, Zachary and like like, like Tiafo and some others. Um, for you, and again, it's a very broad question, but who for you is a really interesting subject just in terms of when you talk to them? Um, they're really, really quotable. They're transparent. They're honest. They think about answers when you ask them questions. The best interview in tennis is Daniil Medvedev. Um, he, and, and not necessarily, I don't know if he has the most interesting story on tour, if that's what you mean, but this guy is like the, one of the more thoughtful, quotable, entertaining, personable athletes I have like genuinely yeah. ever. Spoken I think, to, I thought he would of, be in your top three when you, when you answer this yeah. question. Yeah. Oh, any, any tennis writer would say that, especially because from where he started out, where he was just kind of like on court, I, you know, back in the U S open in 2019, he came out and he was a guy, everybody booed. And he was like, you know, saying, yeah, give me more embracing the heel thing, which was also awesome. Like we love to write about that, but impress he has, you know, he's not afraid to tell you about his personal relationships with everybody in the locker room. And he, he, he just approaches talking to journalists in such a different way where you can, you can really tell like a lot of tennis players do not like it. And you are the outsider and you are the enemy. And, um, it, from my point of view, it seems like Danielle is always like, you guys are part of the same ecosystem as me. Like we're all kind of in this, even though he obviously knows he's different. But um, I mean, man, if you've got a tennis question, go to go to Medvedev. And I've kind of thought about writing that and I don't really know <laughs> how to communicate that at, at this point. But he is uh, he's uniquely good at explaining the weirdness of tennis and never he, he always kind of answers a question with like, oh, yeah, like, I'm so glad you asked me that, even, no matter how weird or how stupid the, the question is. So he's absolutely my number one, I think would be pretty much everybody's. Uh, yeah, I hope you write that. I mean, like the headline writes itself, you know, the tennis player who's a reporter's dream. And then you basically just uh -huh. write the piece. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You, um, you've covered the Wizards for... Um how many years now? I started when they went to the bubble, so August 2020. So three, yeah, three, uh, three years, however many seasons. I don't think it's three seasons, but whatever, how many seasons that is. Uh, Godspeed, John Glenn. That's a lot of Wizards. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, um, all right, so like to me, again, just from the outside, I think like you're having covered the NBA and everything that goes into the NBA, whether it's um, – practices whether it's dealing with star players whether you know the nba is sort of as you know a 365 day a year sport there's always things that are happening um that seems like great training ground for tennis because in many ways uh, a lot of the most interesting thing about tennis is the personalities of the players you know what i'm saying like things that happen away from the court it's very very uh celebrity drenched in the same way the NBA is. They're the players are phenomenal when it comes to their use of social media. Um, the access is probably much better in the NBA, I would think, than tennis. But ha do you feel like that's this has given you, um, I don't know, a little bit of um, in maybe insight's not the right word, but a, a training ground to cover tennis a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I mean, to kind of break it down in a very boring way, but like 
basketball, the key to especially writing on deadline as I do, you know, every single night of the season is things happen really, really fast in a basketball game and you kind of have to be ready to file a story right after. It's the same thing with tennis. Like we had a two hour second set between Djokovic and Medvedev in the final. And then the third was over in like 30 minutes. And I was like, oh shit, I gotta get my story ready. Um, so that definitely helps. But in terms of dealing with personalities, um, absolutely. I mean, and it's really funny. Like, I think I was talking to someone about this at Wimbledon. I was like, you know, you can like, when you're covering the NBA and you're a Lakers beat writer, you get to like talk to LeBron. Like he talks, you know, you can go up to him after games and people were like shocked by that. <laughs> so from that point of view, um, it, I, I feel it, it makes me feel lucky to be an NBA writer. Like you said, we're in terms of the access, but no, the training ground in, in terms of, um, I think there's a lot more amongst te tennis writers, especially you're not just dealing with an American press. So there are different kind of rules for the press corps and people operate differently and, and um, people revere tennis writers from around the globe, American included revere these guys, especially when you're talking to a Djokovic or whatever um, in a way that I feel like American journalists don't always, sometimes they do revere, but like, you know, when, when I got to get a question after Djokovic has, has played till 2 a.m. and come back from two sets down, like, I'm just going to ask the question. I'm not going to wait around and, like, be like, who is this? So, um, it's, yeah, I don't know if that's if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I definitely feel like it's it's helped. And it's also, it helps in how different it is, too. Um, it helps to exercise a different muscle, I think, in terms of writing and reporting. Yeah, the one thing, and again, I, this is very broad strokes by me, but when I remember covering the Open, and it'd be really late and you would see like European journalists, like smoking with like the players entourage, like after mm -hmm. stuff, like it was, it's, it's so different than sort of the precepts of American journalism or at least some American journalism outlets that, um, yeah, you're right. It, it sort of was a little bit taken used to also, and I'm sure Ava, you've done this too. I would sometimes sit in a press conference after they left English and then went into whether it was, you know, Swiss German or oh, Russian. It. And th those press conferences are a million times different. They're so much more conversational back and forth. Yes. It's like fascinating where the American press conferences, I wouldn't call it tense, but it's so formatted, you know? Yeah. And also those, it's also with those, um, journalists who do things I think they always say in second language or native language or whatever. Those are the guys who are following that tennis player around all year. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely a, a different level of, of familiarity and it is really cool to see. And it's also, it's so fun to see like which players change energies when they're speaking in their native tongue. And it's, yeah, I, I always love doing that too. As English, as an English speaker though, it was always fascinating. Once the Brits and the Australians started asking questions, you saw players like going to much more defensive crouch because they were, a lot of tabloid-based oh, questions. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, it was my first Wimbledon this year. And obviously, I've heard and read about and know about like British tabloids and the British press. And seeing that in person, I was like, holy shit. Like, the American athletes have nothing to complain about. Like, yeah, wow. It's, uh, it, was, it, was, it was very, very eye-opening. Okay, a couple more things here. Um, you know, again, from... <laughs> I, I do, it's not even something it's not worth talking about Djokovic, but I, I don't I would expect him just over the next year to continue to play as he has played. You see no decline or anything like that. He will obviously be a story over the next 12 to 16 months. From your perspective, though, I want to ask you about two Americans, and that's Coco and Ben Shelton. Um, if, if I had if, if I if we had this conversation at the end of 2024, has Coco Goff won a couple more Grand Slams? Has Ben Shelton got to a final? What do you think on both? 
my inclination is to say um, yes for Goss, and I, it would be really interesting um, to talk to her in Australia and feel like if she or if she, and ask if she feels like she has unlocked some sort of code, and it's going to be like we saw with Naomi Osaka, and you kind of bang off four in a row because you just know you can do it, and you're in the right time now. Um, she also has a different kind of top tier of of player to contend with like that will not be the last Sabalenka golf final we see and I'm like very excited to watch it more um so yes I expect her to win many more Grand Slams that said Osaka rattle off four in a row and then you know it's been a few years so it's really 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 hard to predict Ben Sheldon I have no idea I you know I hope he sticks around he's a wonderful personality he absolutely nailed the question in in press about Djokovic kind of um mimicking his celebration there so like when someone has that level of awareness and that clear level of um wanting to be in the spotlight and and i think he's a really fast learner also so yeah i think he'll be around for a while but with the with the american guys it's really hard to tell like you know i was also really really excited and still am excited about covering seb Borda, who i think has a beautiful game and could also be one of those guys but i just i haven't seen anyone breakthrough regularly um yet so i don't have a good kind of antenna for oh yeah no he's got the thing that's gonna gonna push him all the way all right two more one um i feel like the post or your editors at the post really give you a lot of latitude when it comes to how you write these pieces um you know they in many ways at least again from my perspective uh, they almost let you sort of be a magazine writer uh, within the pages of a of a newspaper, although I mean, what is a newspaper anymore? You know, within the pages of a digital outlet. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you feel that way? I mean, it, it seems like you you really have, which to me as a reader is very very pleasurable that you're allowed to like take some chances and not necessarily have to do everything. Uh, you know, AP ish or whatever. Although the AP obviously has become more stylish as well. So. Um, you know, that's a that's a terribly asked question to ask you. Uh, you have freedom, right, to sort of maybe try different things when it comes to writing. Absolutely. I have freedom and I have trust and I have, um, you know, a, a night desk that is unbelievably flexible in terms of when I slack them at like 930. I'm like, actually, I'm going to write about that other guy. I'm so sorry. Um, but yeah, and, and that's, I feel like, the way that you you have to write tennis though, right? Like it's, it, no one's coming to tennis of, of all the things. Nobody goes to newspapers for play-by-play anymore. Anyways, the last thing they're coming to, to tennis newspaper stories for is play-by-play. Like that would be awful. So you have to kind of make it stylistic. And that's my absolute favorite thing about covering tennis is there's so much um, history with every player. Like you have history as someone who's been watching them, as someone who's been covering them. People on TV have a relationship with them and it's such a one-on-one thing that um there's so much there to write especially because in a tournament you know you're only writing about like i don't even know how many times i wrote coco but i I feel like i wrote her a lot maybe five times that being said in a tournament so there's there's a lot of stuff to mine um and that's that's i think what's what's great about tennis is it really lends itself to rich stories rather than rich um play-by-play which I, i think that does exist but um yeah, even in the way someone plays their game, like you, you can. That's part of their personality and part of who they are, not necessarily part of just their like talent. Yeah, a lot of the you know, sort of a lot of the 
play-by-play-ish stuff, if that's even sort of the right thing, is like, you know, the, there's a lot more analytics in the sport. So, like, at, yeah. at least in one way, like, people can diagram and diagnose, like, a particular point and, and write about that. And that's um, that's pretty good. I mean, the one thing that – so these are the last two things I want to ask you about. One, um, it's an expensive sport to cover. Uh, as you know, you know, to send people – send American writers around the world is never cheap. Um what was it like sort of when you were abroad? Like, did you get a sense that there were just less and less American journalists or I don't know, is there a ray of hope that maybe you saw more people than one might've expected? Um, at Wimbledon, there was this old photo going around that was kind of like the yearbook. And I can't remember which year it was from. It might, might've been like 94 or whatever of all of the American journalists. It was their headshots and their names and outlets um, covering the U S open. And I should look it up, but some, sometime in the, late eighties or nineties. And they were like, gosh, like 30 of them. And it was, you know, USA today and all the local papers, Miami Herald, like four from the New York times. Um, and I think there were six of us, five of us at Wimbledon this year. So there's definitely that, um, you can, you can absolutely feel the dwindling and it's a little bit different at the slams because you feel it a little bit less because there are so many like, uh, international, journalists that you're friends with and so you feel like you're part of a group but then you kind of look around and you're like man it's really just like just us in the in the times and sometimes the wall street journal um but i mean it, it makes sense to me based on like you said the costs and also at least on the men's side the dwindling uh kind of status of americans tennis american men's tennis on the global stage so you know there are of you could argue there are fewer voices to cover. Obviously, American women's tennis has been just fine, but um, you know, especially with the Williams sisters gone, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't surprised. Uh, wasn't surprised to see fewer and fewer um, American journalists at all. There, it is a bummer though. It's it's totally a bummer. But um, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I see fewer and fewer people traveling on the NBA beat too. So I, I I'm not surprised by it. Last one. Um... You know, obviously you're there, so I don't know how much television you're watching. None on Spectrum. <laughs> yeah, right, none on Spectrum. So, But the realities are that uh, there's very few sports, um, more than tennis, when it comes to, like, inherent conflicts of interest between broadcasters and um, and the sport. Um, it's just – it's been going on for a long, long time. We see coaches who are in the booth. Uh, you know, they've gotten to the point at least where, like, the coaches aren't – um, you know, calling like matches where their player may play the person on uh, the next round. But, you know, whether it's uh, Brad Gilbert coaching Coco Goff and, you know, Lindsey Davenport of Tennis Channel, long relationship with Madison Keys. I mean, you know, Chris Everett knows a ton of people. Mary Jo Fernandez um, used to interview Roger Federer. Her husband is, you know, uh, uh, was the agent or is the agent Roger Federer forever. So these conflicts are sort of all abound. Um you write about this stuff, and while there's Ava, and they're like, there are some people who care. It seems like most people, like most tennis fans, sort of either have accepted it or um, don't care. But from your perspective, like um, when you're, let's say, like interviewing a Brad Gilbert, you're just interviewing Brad Gilbert as Coco's coach, right? Like he's not. If you're, if you happen to be dealing with him, he's not in ESPN mode, or is he? Or like, uh, I don't know. I'd love to get a sense of just what it's like on the ground. So actually, I didn't get to um, talk to him this tournament. I kept, it was one of those ones where I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to follow him around all day and like watch him go from the ESPN studio to her practice and blah, 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 blah. But I actually only ever talked to him and interviewed him as an ESPN commentator. And it kind of, 
uh, he is he has an encyclopedic knowledge of tennis players and their games and everything. So I totally see how he's an asset. But yes, if I were interviewing him this tournament, I c- actually let me take that back. No, I absolutely would have been like, how were the story to me is like, how are you doing your job? Like, are you sleeping? What is your day like? That kind of thing. Um, because like you said, we kind of batted around doing the thing of like, ah, should we push this narrative? Are the only people who care about the conflict of interest other journalists? I tend to think, and I did hear from a lot of people um, saying that they loved having Brad Gilbert on TV. And, you know, there were a couple of matches where I was able to watch um, where Chris Fowler would, it was fascinating. He would ask him about Togo's next opponent, you know, what something she has to do in a match or Chris Fowler would be talking about that. And Brad Gilbert would stay silent sometimes because, and I was like, yeah, he feels like, you know, Fowler did something in there to like, oh, I can't cross that. Well, it's, so yeah, well, it's, think- or it's dueling loyalties, right? You don't want to, you, you got a client and you don't want to say on national television exactly. or international television, yeah, like yeah, what the right. scouting report is. That's where it gets weird. But, but again, like Probably I, much more than that than, yeah. yeah. The, the reality is like the ESPN doesn't care. I mean, Alex Rodriguez was working for the Yankees and on air and Jessica Mendoza was working for the Mets and on air. So like, you know, they, they, they would say that as long as the person isn't, directly calling the matches of the person that they have the relationship with we're okay with that and i think i'm just be honest with my audience They're like well once upon a time i feel like i cared more about that i just like it feels just like like it's a what's the point like it's it's sort of like yeah. past the rubicon and it's not gonna it's not it feels like yelling at the sky yeah it feels sure. like yelling at the sky at this point and so um but it is really fascinating because like you and i think you could appreciate this just given what you do i'm trying to think of the example like could you imagine if like jeff van gundy or uh, like doris burke were like the personal coach of like kevin durant you know like it's just right. like like it's inconceivable to think about in the, yeah. in another sport like that no it's uh it's it's unique and it, it's interesting also because ESPN broadcasters, and I've, I've spoken or met to or, you know, quoted most of them, while they're all, like I said, knowledgeable, super nice, hardworking people, it's like, I, I, they've all been in the exact same positions for a very long time. And it, it's kind of interesting, um, you know, as the rights holders, I think all of the slams except for the French Open now, um, I, I, I wonder when new blood is going to come in and if that will continue to, if they will continue to kind of pull from the coaching pool or how they'll, what direction they'll go in when and if they ever do. It's interesting. I mean, Ed, you know, I don't think he's going anywhere because I think he's sort of even grown his uh, popularity, but like the post McEnroe, post McEnroe's, I guess, era will be really yeah. interesting in tennis because there will be some gigantic seats there that are um, available. I actually always thought Roddick would be a great full-time broadcaster. Oh, I don't, so good on TV. Yeah, I don't know if he's he wants so- it, but he'd be great. But, but you know, like, I, I, I give the ESPN credit. Like, you know, whether you like her or not, like Wozniacki now is a new voice there, although she had such a great tournament, just going to probably play for a little bit. But, yeah, I'm with you. Like, there, there's a big opportunity coming, particularly for ESPN, to sort of reshape their booths because they've had a lot of people in those spots for a long time, and, and that'll be interesting to see. I'll tell you, the guy who... Uh, Chris Ubex was a revelation oh my during this he's tournament. So that, that's a guy who's he's gonna be he's gonna be a prominent broadcasting figure in tennis for a long time. So that that at least in this tournament, that was a really good thing in that I think we've we saw the burgeoning of a brand new voice, which was cool. Absolutely. But what and they, they do have so a lot of the, the James Blakes and, yeah, and Chris Ubex and everything like but 
the Chris McHendrys and Chris Ballers are harder to come by. Yeah, true. And again, they you know they're they've been long stalwarts in tennis, and you know they probably got they're some so time good. left. But I would say, if we if we had this conversation seven years from now, let's say, very very different group of broadcasters at ESPN when it comes to their tennis coverage. Yeah, and I'm interested to see who it'll be. Yeah, same. Abel Wallace is a tennis writer, as well as the Washington Wizards beat reporter for the Washington Post. Uh, read her work on that uh, fantastic publication. When, when uh, I should know this, but like, when does training camp and all that stuff start for, for you? BD days, October 2nd. He goes somewhere <laughs> warm and nice. I got a few weeks to organize my mind. So yeah, now, yeah, I don't know. Go to, go to Santorini or something. Big treat yourself. To, to Cleanse myself. Yeah. yeah. All right, Ava, I'll be reading. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Chad Finn and Ava Wallace for uh, a great conversation. Previous podcasts include this week Al Michaels, Freddie Gadelli, Mark Titleman. They are. Uh, part of the Amazon Prime Video's Thursday Night Football team, and we talked about uh, that broadcast. The start of the NFL season with Kevin Clark, now of Omaha Productions and ESPN. We had Pat McAfee, show producer and on-air personality, Ty Schmidt. On this podcast, Burke Magnus, the ESPN president of content, was on this podcast not too long ago. Todd Blackledge, uh, head to the archives. Uh, there should be some stuff you like. want to thank Patrick Antonetti for his hard work. Thanks to everybody at Odyssey for their support. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.